I invite you to take your Bible this morning. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to read the whole chapter together. In honor of God's word, I invite you to stand to your feet as we read the passage. Now the point and what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve as simply a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the, and then the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since he enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would not have been an occasion to look for a second. For he who finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and I will be their God. And they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that now you would just... Fill me and fill this, this, this place, fill these people with your spirit, Father, that we may hear from you. Father, that we may uh, hear this word as guided to us as a, as a body, as your people. Father, as also as, as in our own lives, as individuals. But Father, we ask that most of all, that whatever you have chosen for this time, Lord, we stand on the promise that your word will never return void and will accomplish the very purpose for which you have set it forth. And so we pray, Father, let us see it. Let us be able to see uh, with our eyes to experience, Father, uh, the results of your hand and what you have promised to do on this day through your word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. On January the 1st in 1863... During the third year of the bloody Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln issued what we all know as the Emancipation Proclamation that, quote, 
that all persons held as slaves are and henceforward shall be free. Can you imagine what that would have been like, the news of that? If you were a slave, could you imagine uh, that at one point you were stolen from the land that you knew, the family that you knew, you were stuck on a ship where many of the people around you that you used to enjoy uh, growing up or, or dying, and you go to who knows where, and then you're put on an auction block and you're sold, and some guy treats you like his property, and and if you don't do everything that he says, you're, you're beaten. You've got whelps and lashes across your back for not being in conformity with his will. You're treated as a thing to be bought and sold. And then you wake up one day and you receive the news that you are free. Could you imagine? Well... Sadly, the Emancipation Proclamation for many, many slaves did not produce freedom. It did not result in freedom because many of them never heard the proclamation. Others, even though the word on the street was that the president had set them free, apparently the word didn't get to their masters. And so they were still kept under the weight of slavery. And I think about that in terms of the Christian message, the gospel. Of, it's a proclamation of emancipation. We have all been set free in Christ Jesus. And yet so many of us, even though we have been declared free, are actually not free. We still wear the shackles. The proclamation in the North meant that, uh, that black men could join the Union Army or Navy, which some 200,000 of them did. These were free men who were now fighting for their southern brothers and sisters to experience the same freedom that they had. The liberators... Uh, the, the liberated became liberators. Some 18 century, centuries later, another emancipation proclamation was, was issued. This one also brought forth from a, a bloody war, uh, not between the north and the south, but between heaven and hell. Uh, this war resulted in the crucifixion of the Son of God. And as the devil laughed, Jesus hung dying from the cross. He couldn't be tempted to sin, and, and, and so the devil just had him killed. And, uh, and while all the demons in hell were raising their glasses and shouting cheers, Jesus was moments away from taking his last breath on earth. Galatians 5.1 says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. 
right before Jesus took his last breath, he said, it is finished. It is finished. He didn't say, woe is me, I'm finished, I'm going to die here, this is the end of it. But he proclaimed that everything required to set us free from violent, abusive master, the evil one, has been taken care of. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And yet, yet, there are still those who try to put a yoke of slavery on us. We must join in the fight. We must join in the fight. We must... Who, we who are liberated must be liberators of others. We are in this, this war, this, this battle, and, and the, the battle is over freedom. Well, in Hebrews chapter 8, we find the main point. The main point uh, that the writer has been leading up to. In fact, he says in verse 1, now, the main point of what we are saying is this. So, in chapter 6 and chapter 7 was just simply building up to the main point. We're finally there. Chapter 8. Uh, what is the main point? Well, the main point is that Jesus, our high priest, has introduced a new covenant. And the new covenant has made the old covenant obsolete. You're going, okay, well... What does that matter? Well, here's the thing. is, is In the passage, and it's going to make more sense because you don't just immediately see it, but it's all over the place. The writer of Hebrews is going to rely on the metaphor of covenant, and he's going to use the language of marriage to convince his readers, who, as you will recall, are Jewish converts who are considering returning to their old life under Judaism, which be, would be a return to the old covenant. They are, in fact, according to the passage, in making that consideration, actually considering becoming adulterers and breaking the covenant bond that God has made with them. That's what's at stake here. Jesus has set us free by giving us a whole new covenant. And this new covenant is based on relationship, whereas the old covenant was based on religion. But the new covenant is going to make the old covenant obsolete. So that's the gist of what we're going to see today. So the question is, why in the world would anyone return to their shackles when their freedom has already been bought for them. And yet we do it all the time, right? And that's exactly, by the way, what Satan would, would want us to do. But we have been set free. We have an emancipation proclamation. In the scriptures, that emancipation proclamation is called the new covenant. The new covenant. And what that means is that Jesus... And giving us a new covenant is not giving us the old covenant 2.0, but it's a whole new covenant. Different new. Right? The old covenant was based on religion. 
Jesus did not come to give us a new religion, right? Uh, it's not a religion that replaces, Christianity is not a religion that replaces Judaism, as some people believe, right? Jesus came to put an end to religion and to replace it with a covenant of relationship between God and his people. There's a, a thing about religion that you need to know. It, it's very helpful when you talk to people who are hung up on, on the subject of religion or who see Christianity as another religion. All religions have two things in common. Number one, they believe that there is an ultimate reality uh, of, above and beyond the natural world. So they have some form of deity. Secondly, every religion believes that there is some gap that exists between the deity, the greater reality, and mankind. They all believe that. And so what you find in the various religions is simply the means given by which we must close that gap between the divine and mankind. Islam, it uh, completes these five pillars. If you complete these five pillars, that doesn't necessarily make you cross the gap. It just gives you a much better chance to win in the end. Uh, Buddhism, through transcendental meditation and trying to empty yourself to the point of becoming one with the universe is how the gap is breached, how you cover it. In Hinduism, you just simply live your life and you get reincarnated and hopefully you advance instead of you know, going the other direction, but every chance you get, every life you get is one step closer to closing the gap. Some secularists will argue that that's the problem with religion. And so what we need to do is just simply do away with religion altogether. Right? Let's just stick to what we know. Let's just stick to human reason. But the problem with that argument is that human reason is their religion. It's how they're going to close the gap that they know is within them. Secularism, humanism, atheism, they're all religions. They're all religions. They have mankind as their God, and they're reconciling with themselves how to close some gap that they don't even recognize. I love what C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Abolition of Man. He says this, You cannot go on explaining away forever you will find that you have explained explanation itself away. <laughs> you cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It, it is good that a window should be transparent because the street or garden, garden beyond it is opaque. How, if you saw through the garden too, would that work? 
it, it, it is no use trying to see through first principles. If you see through everything, then everything is transparent. But a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through all things is at the same time not to see at all. Basically what he's saying is this. When you explain away everything, then eventually you have to explain away your explaining. Let me give an example. Right, the evolutionist. The evolutionist will say that uh, the human being's need for God is nothing more than a bunch of brain chemicals working together to make up the need for a deity because we have something within us that just simply needs a higher power. But here's the problem with that. Because those same people then must also conclude that they are using nothing more than those same chemicals to come up with their own belief system. They have argued away their argument. Or maybe this one, right? The, the atheist who says there is no such thing as moral absolutes. The problem is they've just explained away what they have just said. Right? Because if you say there are no moral absolutes, you have just stated an absolute of which there is none. Because you just stated there is none. Therefore, you have explained away your explanation. Jesus came to, came to do away with, with religion altogether. Of every sort. And he's doing so by bridging the gap himself. He is the bridge between God and man. He came to be the window through which we look and see God. In which we see the world. He, he doesn't offer to us, like every other religion does, he does not offer to us ways in which we can cross the gap. He just says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. He crossed the gap. He crossed the gap. He came to us. He not only crossed the gap, but he came, he crossed the gap. While he was here, he died in our place. He rescued us. He rose from the dead, and now he has removed the gap completely. That's our Jesus. Revelation 21.3 says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with Man, the gap is gone. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will be with them. There is no gap between God and humanity in Jesus Christ. So we should ask the question, well, why is there a gap in the first place? Why did God put a gap there? Well, the Bible explains it. As something that man created. We created the gap. When we sinned against God. And every person instinctively knows. 
Every single one of us knows that, which is why we're all religious. I love the way that, that David Dark put it in the title of, us, of one of his books. The title is this, Life is Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. We all are. You will never meet anybody who isn't. But Jesus is the only one who claims to be the bridge between God and man. And his goal is to do away with religion by doing away with the gap. Many uh, religious leaders claim that they know the way. And if you follow me or you follow my teaching, then you can bridge the gap. Jesus is the only one who actually claims to be the way. So last week we saw that the only way that any of us could cross this, this gap between God and man, between God and ourselves, in our own, for relying on ourselves, is through perfection. We have to be perfect as he is perfect, which kind of erases the whole thing, doesn't it? Because none of us are perfect, so none of us can bridge this gap on our own. Only Jesus Christ lived a, a perfect life, a sinless life. And so when we become united to him by faith, when we're united to him, we receive what he is, and thus in him we cross the gap. We become separated from God by sin. We are rejoined to God through Christ. Colossians 1 says it like this, 21 through 22. Once you were alienated from God, there's the gap, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. It's on us. We created the gap. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. There's our bridge through death to present you. This is us crossing the gap, present you holy in his sight without blemish, and free from sin. And that means we have been made perfect in Him. Free from accusation. This is why it is uh, so important, and the writer of Hebrews is going through great lengths to try to explain to us that Jesus Christ is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, because that means that He is both a priest and a king. Now let me tell you why that's so, so important. Right In, in the Old Testament, you have, you have priests and you have kings. You don't have both. You don't have both, except for this one strange character by the name of Melchizedek. But Jesus is both. He is both a priest and a king, right? And, and that allows him to be able to bridge the gap because a king stood for God for the sake of the people, he represented God to the people. That's what kings did. A priest went the other direction. A priest represented the people to God. And so one who is a priest king is a mediator between both. He represents God to the people and the people to God. He's able to bring those two separate relationships together to be one. This is why it's so important, why the writer of Hebrews has just spent three chapters 
on this. Finally to get to chapter 8 and say, well, here's the point of that. Here's the point. It has to do with the new covenant. Well, what does that mean? Right? We need to understand covenant. New covenant. Well, let's define what a covenant is, all right? Number well, first, there's not number one, this is it. Simply, a covenant is an agreement that defines the terms of a relationship. That's it. It's it's an agreement. It's not a contract, but it's more of an agreement that defines the terms of a relationship. What each person in a relationship is responsible for in order to make the relationship work. That's a covenant. Now, the old covenant was based on religion, right? So, so that covenant kind of looked like this. God is saying, I'm, I'm going to be your God, and you are going to be my people, and the way you're going to make this work is you're going to uh, live according to the law. You're going to obey my law. And so the gap would be closed between God and man through religion. Faithfulness to the law. But then Jesus comes along and he says, no, 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 no. We're, we're going to go with a whole different covenant. Uh, I'm going to give you a, a, a new covenant. This is not a new religion, right? This is a relationship. We're going to do this by relationship now. And it is a relationship of the most intimate kind. Some scholars say that there are basically seven covenants in the Bible. Um, others say that there are five but covenant theologians basically point out that well, there, there's really two kinds of covenants. There's only two kinds. Uh, the first kind is what is called the covenant of works. The covenant of works where God says, I will do this just as long as you do this. Specifically, walk according to the law. This is a two-way covenant where God promises to do his part and we promise to do our part. Covenant of works. The second is what is called the covenant of grace. Covenant of grace. This is where God says, this is the part that I will do. And your job is basically to freely enjoy it. The responsibility is completely on God. And he puts none on us. This is a one-way covenant where God does his part, and our part is simply to respond by faith. And the writer of Hebrews is presenting his case to these Jewish converts who are toying with the idea right, of going back to Judaism. Such a move would not be a, an upward move. It would not be a lateral move. It would be an incredible giant step in the wrong direction from a covenant of grace back to a covenant of works. From, two, from one way back to two way. Uh, what a ridiculous move that would be. And so in verse 6 he says, But in fact the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one. 
since the new covenant is established by better promises. How is the new covenant so much better than the old? Well, it says so. It is established on better promises. Now, I want to go to the marriage language, which is present here. We could call these promises, we could literally call them vows. The old covenant was established on works. So God says his vows, and Israel responds by saying, yes, you will be our God, and and we promise our vows to remain faithful to you through the law. But the better promise is that Jesus says, I will save you based on nothing you have done, but purely as a gift of my love to you. Now, that's a picture of of marriage. And I ask the question, and and I say this uh, with trepidation, but which of those covenants best resembles your marriage? If you're married, right? Is your marriage based on I'll scratch your back as long as you scratch my back kind of relationship? And if you do that, over time, you're going to get two people with very itchy backs. Right? The, the first time one partner doesn't scratch your back, right? then, the, then the other partner is like, well, I'm not going to scratch yours then. And then the process begins. That is not a, a covenant. That is a contract. <laughs> Uh, that, that is a contract, and contracts will eventually be broken or, or simply produce just simple cold duty, but not loving relationship. So the clearest example, then, we have of a covenant relationship is, is marriage. Marriage. When a man and a woman get married, they are entering into a, a three-way covenant. Man, we could use a whole lot more of this in our society, people understanding what they do when they're getting married. It is a three-way covenant between God, the man, and the woman. Whether they recognize it or not, because God is the one who has established what marriage is. So the couple, in a wedding ceremony, they repeat vows to one another, and they do so before God. And those vows declare exclusivity to to one another until death do them part. God recognizes the marriage union as a covenant that he himself formed, which is why we can't break it. Mark 10, 8 and 9 says it like this, the two will become... One flesh, they'll become one, so they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has, what, who's joined it together? God. What God has joined together, let no one separate. God's joined together. And God's joined this union in marriage between two people, taking one from parents, one from this parents, this family and he brought them together and made one one being, one flesh 
In fact, God created, I think, created marriage for the purpose of showing us what his relationship with his people looks like. I don't think it's the other way around, for sure. It began with God using the covenant of marriage to describe his covenant with Israel. And this marriage language continues. Check this out, Ezekiel 16. I know it's a little lengthy and small, but listen to it because it's beautiful. This is God speaking to Israel. I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you're at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. That is basically how they did marriage. Skirt is not like a skirt. It's more like a robe. And I covered over you and also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine. You see the the language here? Then I bathed you with water. I washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet. And I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments. I put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, which is... That's, that's what we do today. We put, I put earrings in your ears and beautifully crowned on your head. You were adorned with gold and silver and your dress was a fine linen silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil. So you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went among the nations on account of your beauty. For it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. How awesome is that? Right? So he's like going, I, I found you, and, and you were a complete wreck, but I entered into a covenant with you. I took you to be my wife, right? And then I made you, I adorned you with beauty. That's us. I adorned you with beauty. And specifically the beauty of, he says, my splendor. I gave to you. I gave to you. I bestowed it upon you. And because of that, right, because you're loved by a king, your fame has spread to the, to the ends of the earth. How awesome, right? Beautiful. So covenant language, when we talk about covenant, is marriage Language, but the Old and New Covenant are very, very different from one another. Now look at how the the New Covenant is superior to the Old. Verses 1 and 2. Now the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human beings. So first thing I want you to see is the new covenant was established when Jesus, our high priest, sat down at the right hand of God. Why did he sit down? Because, like I said, 
on the cross, he said, it is finished. Right? He finished the work he was sent to do. Which means there was nothing left for him to do in order to save us. Everything has been done. But check this out. Ephesians 2.6 says this, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. All right? Because a Christian is one who is united to Christ, then when he sat down at the right hand of God, that means that we in him sat down with him. We sat down. He sat down. We sat down in him. Which means that there is nothing for us to do in order to gain salvation. It's all been done. Now, under the old covenant, the priests never sat down. Right? There were no recliners in the Holy of Holies. Right? He didn't sit down because his work was never finished. There was always another lamb to slaughter. There was always, every single year, another day of atonement. Just kept going. He never, he never rested from his work. Verse 5 says, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. In other words, all the things associated with the work of the priest, the temple, the sacrifices, the burning of incense, uh, the high priest himself, all of that is a shadow of the real thing, which is Christ. So they, they couldn't be finished because they were simply a shadow of the real thing. They could never be finished because they weren't the finished product. Christ was. And so he accomplished his work and he said, it is finished. And people just, and it just blows the minds of, of, could you imagine the first century conversation that a Christian would have had with a Roman? Because the Romans, the Romans thought that, that Christians were really weird. They thought they were atheists, in fact. Imagine the conversation going something like this. So, uh, which of these temples do you do you worship at? <laughs> well, I don't I don't worship at any of these temples. Jesus is my is my temple. Okay. Well, I mean, so then who is your priest? Because everybody has a priest. Every even the pagans have a priest. I mean, you Jews, you have a high priest. So, so who, who, who's your priest? And you go, yeah, you see Jesus. Jesus is my priest. Okay? What about, like, you know, then who offers the sacrifices? Right? If you don't have a priest, then who's, who's making the atonement for your sins? Who, who's doing all that? And you go, well, here's the thing. You know, Jesus, he is my sacrifice. They are like going, you people are crazy. You Christians are crazy. But here's the thing, man, is Jesus has ended religion. Because he's everything. He's everything that religion was meant to point us to. It's just a shadow. But Jesus is the fulfillment. Religion says live like this, 
and you will be accepted by God. Christianity says you're accepted by God, so live like this. It's a huge difference. So in the same way, the old covenant says, get up. What are you doing? You don't have time to to be resting. You need to get up. You need to get to work. There's still more that you have to do. There's no rest for the weary in religion. No sitting down. The new covenant says, park it. Sit down. Put your feet up. Relax. Everything has been done. There's nothing more for you to do. You've already bridged the gap. In fact, we've already bridged the gap. It's like we have already been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Isn't that what it said? Not that you will be. We're already there. We've already bridged the gap. Now, to go back to the covenant, that old covenant would be insanity. It's like the emancipated slave willfully going back to its slave owner and saying, I will put myself again in shackles. It's insanity. Now, to drive home this point, and this is where this thing turns just beautiful. Not that it already hasn't been up to this point uh, in the scripture, but now to drive home the point of the superiority of the new covenant over the old, the writer of Hebrews is going to quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 8, direct quote. Look at verse 8 and 9. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, and it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and they turned away from them, declares the Lord. So through the prophet Jeremiah, God promised that he would make a new covenant with us, his people, because the old one wasn't working. In fact, it was broken. The old one was like a marriage with an adulterous spouse. And I want you to listen because this thing is is just inundated with marriage language. He says, I took them by the hand and I led them out of Egypt. Now that is a specific reference to the vows God made with his bride Israel. He's quoting his, his marriage vows. In fact, they were spoken first in Exodus 6, 7. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. You see it? It's the same thing that he just said, that I made a covenant with them. I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. So he's referring to his vows. I, God, take you, Israel, to be my people. God promises his faithfulness to his people, right? But his bride did not keep 
her vows of faithfulness to God. Israel had broken the heart of God with adultery, chasing after other lovers. So Israel had broken the covenant. They did not keep their end of the deal. And so God, no longer being bound to Israel, because Israel had been unfaithful, it says that God turned away from her. Jeremiah 3.8 says this, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all her adulteries. Did you know that God was a divorcee? God says in Malachi 2.16, I hate divorce, and yet here he is with an unfaithful spouse who has broken the covenant with him. Matthew 19.9, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So the only way to break the vows is adultery, sexual immorality. And that is exactly what Israel has done. The covenant is so binding that the one thing that can break it is the one thing Israel did. Death did them part. But not so fast. Because God, is, he just couldn't walk away for good. He just couldn't do it. Right? His heart won't let him do it. He cannot forget his love. He just can't. And so he establishes a new covenant with, with his people. And it's very different from the first, right? God uh, doesn't walk away for good. The whole story between God and Israel is played out in the book of Hosea. Uh, Hosea has a wife named Gomer who is an adulteress and she ends up being trafficked off as a sex slave. And Hosea hunts her down, finds her being sold off, and, and then buys her back. Buys her freedom. Which is exactly what God has done. She's undeserving, yet he buys her back. Which is what Christ did for us. It's exactly what it did for us. Right? But he didn't just pay out you know, a, a few shekels. He paid in his own blood. But here's the other half of this covenant instead of saying i will do my part now as long as as long as you promise now not to ever do that again no he he says this this new covenant i'm going to do my part in spite of what you have done and in spite of what you do in fact here's what we're going to do i i'm going to do your part as well and I'm going to put it within you and empower you to desire to remain faithful to me. That's the new covenant. Look at verses 10 and 12. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel 
after that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord because they're all going to know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sin no more. Now the first thing I want you to see is that God, basically what he's doing here is he's renewing his vows right, with his people. It's the exact same vows he said the first time back in Exodus. I will be their God and you will be my people. Same vows. Same vows. Right? Which means that God hasn't changed his end of the covenant. He kept his vows. Right? He always will keep his vows. He always will keep his promise because that's just who he is. Right? His faithfulness is guaranteed because of his perfecting, unfailing character. Exodus 15, 59 through 60 says this, For thus says the Lord God, I will also do with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath by breaking the covenant. Nevertheless, nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. God's going, now you broke it. You broke the covenant, and you should get this. Nevertheless, man, I just can't do it. I'm going to establish with you a whole new covenant, an everlasting covenant, a new one. So what then is new about this covenant? Well, the new part is on our end of the deal. right? Under the new covenant, God himself will do everything that is required by us. He will do it. He will make sure that we're able to keep the, our end of the relationship. He will keep us faithful. How's he going to do that? Well, it says that he put his law in our minds and he will write them on our heart. Pre previously, the law was written on stone tablets, right? Now it is written on human hearts. What this means is that in Christ, God gives us a whole new heart. Ezekiel 36, 26, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So this new heart that is within the believer, unlike the old one, which is hardened towards God by the law, this new heart desires to be faithful. We desire to be faithful to our God. That doesn't mean we're always going to be, uh, you know, obey Him, but it means that we will always want to obey Him, and when we fail Him, we will run to Him. Jesus died to save us, but his death also secured our faithfulness to him. Let me show you a second truth that makes this covenant new. Verse 11, no longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me for the least of them to the greatest. Ooh, I feel like I should take my shoes off for this. 
the language in the in the the Greek is beautiful. The word know, when it says that they will, no one will say, know the Lord, because they will all know me. The first know does not mean to know about. It means to know intimately, like a husband and wife know each other. The second time the word know is used is a completely different word in the Greek text. It means to see or perceive. So you put it together, and verse 11 says, because they will know me, they shall see me as I truly am. Hosea 2, 19 and 20 says, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know. You shall know the Lord. I love that. So there's a knowledge about God in which we can use theological uh, precepts to declare, you know, God is like this, God is like that. And that's important. But there is a knowing that, that comes from intimacy that is deeper than just factual statements. It is a knowledge that is only shared by spouses, right? You might know me because you know some things about me, right? But my, my wife, she knows me like no other. Right? She can just read like my face and know what I'm thinking. Right? This, that's relationship of a new covenant. Because it, it's what it opens up to us, is to not simply know about God from a distance, but to, to know Him, to be in union with Him. Because all this marriage talk that God used to describe His relationship with His people is, is a metaphor for our union with Christ. Right? The idea of two becoming one. Uh, the idea of what God has joined together let man not separate, right? That's marriage talk, but it's also about our relationship with God. Let me show you, I'll prove it. Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. He's not talking about marriage. He's talking about Christ in the church. And marriage is simply a picture of that. Third, third thing that makes this covenant new. Verse 12. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Okay, this is the mountain peak of the new covenant. Right? Total forgiveness and total forgetfulness. Under the old covenant, God walked away. Under the new covenant, He will never walk away. Under the old covenant, God sees our sin and turns His face away from us. Under the new covenant, God sees us and turns His face away from our sin. Everything's different. 
Jesus has secured our forgiveness for all time, for every sin, past, present, and future. And because of that, right, the Father refuses to keep a record of our sin and keep it hanging over us. Right? He's not the, the spouse that, that always goes back to the past. Oh, yeah? Yeah? Well, you remember when you did that? Well, let me remind you of some stuff. That's not the father. He's forgotten it all. His vow to us does never include the words, till death do us part. Because death has been swallowed up forever. Right? The final gap has been conquered. Now think of what that means. <laughs> think of what that means. Because it opens up a, a way for us to not just have a, a contractual relationship with God, but it opens up a way for us to have this, this close, intimate relationship with the living God that's filled with freedom and confidence and love. It means that God's love is never conditioned on our religious performance. The old covenant is obsolete, right? But his love is unconditional. We can't fall out of his love. Can't do it. And being loved like that frees us to love him with, you know, no strings attached. And frees us to love one another. It sets us free. It sets us free. God doesn't demand our love. You love me back or else. He loved us even when we didn't love him. 1 John 4.10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's one way love. It flows one direction. No conditions attached. And that kind of love, it compels us. It compels us. I'm drawn to him. I want to follow him. He has put that heart of desire within me. I want to worship him. I want to make much of him. I want to share this amazing love story with everybody that I know especially those who are exhausted and worn out from religion. This is our emancipation proclamation. Right? We're free. We are free. We're freed by love. We are, we are free. Free to love. We've been set free. So why in the world will we still walk around as though we are slaves. I ask you today, are you really free? Are you really free? You've heard the Emancipation Proclamation. Maybe you have been declared free, but just like the original Emancipation Proclamation declared slaves to be free, thousands upon thousands were not free. So just because you've heard it declared doesn't mean you're actually free. Are you free? Are you free to live the life of one 
who is incredibly loved. Instead of living constantly in a way that you're trying to be loved. Are you free to not take yourself so seriously? <laughs> Are you free from those who want to put a yoke of slavery back on you? Because the passage in Scripture makes it clear it is for freedom. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Father, for the freedom that we have in him. Father, it's not a freedom that we give lip service to because so many of us will say, yeah, Jesus sets us free. But the reality is, is we live as slaves, slaves to sin, slaves to approval, slaves to our own past, slaves to shame, slaves to negative thoughts. And you have renewed your vows with your people in Christ Jesus. Everything has been accomplished. We have been seated with him in the heavenlies. But why do we constantly default back to there's something in us that wants to do more? God have mercy. Why do we constantly find our ways drifting back to an old covenant that's been made obsolete and that will soon be vanished? God, live us, let us live as new covenant people. Married to Christ. The gap has been closed. Let us not look back over the edge, but constantly just be moving further and further and further into Christ. Father, if there's anybody here today or, or watching online who has never trusted in Christ, I pray, Father, that you would help them just right now to just say, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I pray that you would save me. I pray that you would save me right here, right now. And that they would hear the God of creation say, I do. And I will. Father, we love you. We thank you for this freedom. We thank you, Father, for this union. We thank you, Father, for not giving up on us. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. We thank you, Father, for your, your un, unending love. May we rest in it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to invite you to stand to your feet. If, uh, you just